0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the Hub of the Universe. This is episode 152, Women and Witchcraft. Hi, I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about the four women who were executed for witchcraft in Boston and Dorchester between 1648 and 88. Witchcraft can be loosely defined as the act of invoking evil spirits— or consulting, covenanting with, entertaining, employing, feeding, or rewarding any evil spirit. In practice, it can be defined as the failure to conform. This week, we're discussing the trials and executions of Margaret Jones, Alice Lake, Anne Hibbins, and Anne Glover. But before we talk about these women who fell victim to superstition and Puritan morality, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event.
0: Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Season 1 of the Witch Hunt podcast. Host creator Nancy Mata's Bird describes the series as a podcast about the history of scapegoating, and Season 1 details the Salem Witch Trials, which are ever so slightly better known than the Boston Witch Trials. To get you hooked, Episode 1 asks the question, Why is Salem the witch hunt that people remember? It examines the European roots of the Salem Witch Trials and features renowned author Francis Hill, author of A Delusion of Satan. In Episode 2, historian Dr. Mary Beth Norton discusses what it was about the villagers of Salem that made them the people most likely to unleash a witchcraft hysteria. The 10-episode season weaves together a compelling narrative and includes the reflections of direct descendants of some of the victims.
1: And for our upcoming event this week we're featuring a talk at Old South Meeting House that's presented by the Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands and co-sponsored by the group Boston Harbor Now, called Peddix Island, Rich History, Vital Future. Pedocks is the second largest of the 34 Boston Harbor Islands. Managed by the State Department of Conservation and Recreation, it's a favorite park for day trips from Boston and family camping, but the island also has a rich history. There's archaeological evidence including the oldest human remains ever found in Massachusetts, that the island was long occupied by Native Americans. It was the site of one of the first interactions between European visitors and the indigenous population, when a French trading ship visited it in 1616. Early English colonist Thomas Morton recalled in his 1637 book, A New English Canaan, Upon some distaste given in the Massachusetts Bay by the Frenchmen then trading there with the natives for beaver, they set upon the men at such advantage that they killed many of them, burned their ship, then riding at anchor by an island there, now called pettick's Island. The survivors were taken as captives, with Morton writing of the victors, distributing them unto five sachems, which were lords of the several territories adjoining. They did keep them so long as they lived. In more recent history, Pettix Island was home to Fort Andrew, which was designed during the Spanish-American War era and played a role in Boston's harbor defenses during both World Wars. Visitors today can explore the crumbling barracks and the concrete bunkers that used to house cannons so big that they broke the windows every time they were fired. They can also visit a cottage community that is the last remnant of Boston's early 20th century Portuguese-American fishing fleet. Over the years, the island played host to a healthy trade in bootlegging and speakeasies during Prohibition, to a venue for Sunday baseball when Boston's blue laws prevented such frivolity on land, and to an entrepreneurial group from the Passamaquoddy tribe of Maine who came all the way to Boston Harbor to hunt seals for cash. Today, Pettix Island is at a crossroads, and the quiet campground and historic fort where we have spent many happy summer weekends are slated for redevelopment. Plans are on the table to bulldoze much of historic Fort Andrew and replace it with a luxury hotel and spa, an outdoor concert venue, and a conference center. With that context, here's how the event at Old South Meeting House is described. Peddocks Island, a series of drowned drumlins, is part of the Boston Harbor Islands National and State Park. It's currently the largest of the 34 Boston Harbor Islands that is open to the public. Home to historic Fort Andrew, Walking tours, geological features, and archaeological sites, the island is in the midst of an exciting redevelopment planning process led by Boston Harbor Now with the National Park Service and the Department of Conservation and Recreation. Sherry Ruane of Weston and Sampson Design Studio, lead consultant for the island's development plan, and Alice Brown of Boston Harbor Now, will discuss fascinating highlights of the island's past, present, and future. The event will be held at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, October 10th. It's free and open to the public, but advanced registration is required. If you plan to attend, please listen with a skeptical ear for any whitewashing of a plan to convert one of Boston's last great wild spaces to a luxury retreat open only to the elite. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com.
0: Before we move on with the show, we just want to say thank you to the growing group of listeners who support us on Patreon. Hub History is a labor of love, and your support means that we can cover our monthly costs and dream about ways to make the show better for our now 2,000-plus listeners per week. We have big plans to improve the show, from moving our hosting to a different platform, to redesigning the website, to upgrading some of our recording hardware. If you're not yet supporting us and you'd like to... Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on support us. Thanks again to all our new and existing supporters. And now it's time for this week's main topic.
1: Fall is generally thought to be a great time to be a New Englander, but I hate it. I can't enjoy leaf peeping and apple picking knowing that summer has officially ended. Only two things can get me out of bed in the morning once September passes. Pumpkin spice anything and the hint of Halloween on the breeze. To celebrate my first episode in quite some time, I'm blending Boston history with seasonal charm in this who's who of Boston witchcraft trials. We're going to try to refrain from referring to these women as witches because it's just not accurate. They may be gossips, loudmouths, misfits, or overly educated and sexually active women who are ahead of their time, but witches is really too simplistic of a label. The historical notion of witchcraft and the ensuing hysteria is hard to comprehend in light of the scientific knowledge that we have today, but it's also really easy to understand when you consider how quick people are to scapegoat, ostracize, and give in to fear of difference. Margaret Jones of Charlestown was the first person to be executed for witchcraft in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Jones was a midwife and practiced herbal medicine, which contributed to the accusations against her. There are only two primary sources of information on Jones's trial, Governor John Winthrop's journal and the observances of Minister John Hale, who, as a 12-year-old boy, had witnessed Jones's execution. Governor John Winthrop and several other founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were among the members of the general court which tried and convicted Margaret Jones for witchcraft. The others included Deputy Governor Thomas Dudley and Assistant Governors John Endicott, Richard Bellingham, William Hibbins, Increase Noel, Simon Bradstreet, John Winthrop Jr., and William Pynchon. Winthrop's journal does not reveal anything specific about what caused the accusations against Jones or her husband William, who was also accused but not convicted. The case against her was built on evidence collected using the methods of English witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins. Hopkins' manual on witch hunting was published one year before Jones's conviction, in which Hopkins prescribed the practice of watching, which required the accused to sit in a specific position, usually with legs crossed, for a period of 24 hours, during which she or he would be observed. If the person was a witch, it was supposed that within 24 hours an imp would appear to feed off of the witch. An imp was a small creature or familiar who depended upon the witch for daily sustenance. The watching of Margaret Jones occurred on May 18, 1648, and Winthrop recorded an imp was seen in the clear light of the day. He recorded the evidence used to convict Jones in his journal. June 15, 1648. At this court, One Margaret Jones of Charlestown was indicted and found guilty of witchcraft and hanged for it. The evidence against her was, number one, that she was found to have such a malignant touch as many persons, men, women, and children, whom she stroked or touched with any affection or displeasure, were taken with deafness or vomiting or other violent pains and sickness.
0: Maybe not so damning when you consider that her patients were already sick.
1: 2. She practicing physic, and her medicines being such things as, by her own confession, were harmless, as aniseed, liquors, etc., yet had extraordinarily violent effects.
0: Yeah, I've vomited after eating jello during a particularly nasty bout of norovirus, so nothing on that.
1: Number three, she would use to tell such as would not make use of her physic that they would never be healed and accordingly their diseases and hurts continued with relapse against the ordinary course, and beyond the apprehension of all physicians and surgeons.
0: Yes, that is how sickness works.
1: Some things which she foretold came to pass accordingly, other things she would tell of as secret speeches, etc., which she had no ordinary means to come to the knowledge of.
0: Except neighborhood gossip, of course.
1: She had, upon search, an apparent teat, as fresh as if it had been newly sucked, and after it had been scanned, upon a forced search, that was withered, and another began on the opposite side.
0: Moles. Nikki has lots of those.
1: Number six. In prison, in the clear daylight, there was seen in her arms, she sitting on the floor, and her clothes up, etc., a little child which ran from her into another room, and the officer following it, it was vanished. The little child was seen in two other places to which she had relation, and one maid that saw it fell sick upon it and was cured by the said Margaret, who used means to be employed to that end.
0: Okay, I'm stumped on that one, but I'm going to point at either a flickering shadow or sleep deprivation.
1: Jones was hanged on June 15, 1648 at the gallows on Boston Neck, near the Cathedral of the Holy Cross in present-day Boston.
0: John Hale, who was 12 years old when he, along with other neighbors of Jones, visited her in prison on the day of her execution, later wrote the following in his book, A Modest Enquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft. She was suspected partly because that after some angry words passing between her and her neighbors, some mischief befell such neighbors and their creatures or the like, partly because some things supposed to be bewitched or have charm upon them being burned She came to the fire and seemed concerned. The day of her execution, I went in company of some neighbors who took great pains to bring her to confession and repentance. But she constantly professed herself innocent of that crime. Then one prayed her to consider if God did not bring this punishment upon her for some other crime, if she had not been guilty of stealing many years ago. She answered she had stolen something, but it was long since, and she had repented of it, and there was enough grace in Christ to pardon her that long ago. But as for witchcraft, she was wholly free from it, and said so unto her death. After Jones was put to death, her husband Thomas, who'd been released from prison, tried to leave the colony on the ship Welcome. However, the ship, which had a heavy load of cargo, had trouble keeping its balance in fair weather. When it was realized that the husband of a condemned witch was on board, and he had quarreled with the captain, Thomas was arrested and put back into prison. Upon his arrest, it was claimed the ship immediately righted itself. As an adult and a minister, Hale was an active participant in the bringing of charges in the Salem Witch Trials, but afterwards had a change of heart. Accusations of witchcraft against Reverend Hale's wife helped to bring an end to the proceedings. In Salem Witchcraft, with an account of Salem Village and a history of opinions on witchcraft and kindred subjects, Charles Wentworth Upham wrote, The accusers, in aiming at such characters, overestimated their power, and the tide began to turn against them. But what finally broke the spell by which they had held the minds of the whole colony in bondage was their accusation of Mrs. Hale, the wife of the minister of the First Church in Beverly. Her genuine and distinguished virtues had won for her a reputation, and secured in the hearts of the people a confidence which superstition itself could not sully nor shake. Mr. Hale had been active in all the previous proceedings, but he knew the innocence and piety of his wife, and he stood forth between her and the storm he had helped to raise. Although he had driven it on while others were its victims, he turned and resisted it when it burst in upon his own dwelling. Just two years after Jones was executed, Goodwife Lake of Dorchester would fall victim to a new round of witchcraft accusations. Of her plight, Hale wrote, Another that suffered on that account sometime after was a Dorchester woman. And upon the day of her execution, Mr. Thompson, minister at Braintree, and J.P., her former master, took pains with her to bring her to repentance. And she utterly denied her guilt of witchcraft, yet justified God for bringing her to that punishment. For she had, when a single woman, played the harlot, and being with child used means to destroy the fruit of her body to conceal her sin and shame. And although she did not affect it, Yet she was a murderer in the sight of God for her endeavors, and showed great penitency for that sin, but owned nothing of the crime laid to her charge.
1: Unfortunately, very little information on Alice Lake survives. We know that she had five children, and the youngest, a baby, died. It seems that in her grief she had dreams or visions of the child, a normal response to such a tragedy. But when she spoke of it, her words were taken literally, and any visitation of spirits was a sign of witchcraft and the devil. Sarah K. Black, then a public history graduate student at UMass Boston, researched Lake with an eye towards the role of sexuality in witchcraft accusations. After all, while Lake professed her innocence to the charge of witchcraft, she seems to have accepted her brutal fate, as punishment for her promiscuity and attempted abortion many years earlier. Of her research, Lake writes, With a very limited source base, only parts of Alice's story could be reconstructed, but through these fragments and reflections, I found a broader story to tell. I argue that Alice accepted her impending death as punishment for her crimes because she had lived in a society where sexuality was extremely restrictive. Her final moments also reveal a theme in colonial New England witchcraft that scholars may have overlooked or disregarded—sexuality. The erotic component of witchcraft was instrumental in blurring the barrier between woman and witch. By examining the relationship between sexuality and witchcraft, we can better understand the components of sorcery and Puritan ideology, sexuality in New England society, and why women such as Alice— may have solidified their identities as handmaidens of the devil. History repeated itself with the trial and execution of Anne Hibbins in 1655. Of her case, Governor Thomas Hutchinson, in 1765, wrote, The most remarkable occurrence in the colony in the year 1655 was the trial and condemnation of Mrs. Anne Hibbins for witchcraft. Losses in the latter part of her husband's life had reduced his estate and increased the natural crabbedness of his wife's temper, which made her turbulent and quarrelsome, brought her under church censure, and at length rendered her so odious to her neighbors as to cause some of them to accuse her of witchcraft. The jury brought her in guilty, but the magistrates refused to accept the verdict, so the cause came to the general court, where the popular clamor prevailed against her, and the miserable woman was condemned and executed. Search was made upon her body for teats, and in the chests and boxes for puppets, images, etc. But there is no record of anything of that sort being found. It fared with her as it did with Joan of Arc in France. Some counted her a saint and some a witch, and some observed solemn marks of providence set upon those who were very forward to condemn her.
0: Hibbins was twice widowed, first by a man named Moore, and secondly by a wealthy merchant, William Hibbins whose first wife, Hester Bellingham, was the sister of Richard Bellingham, the governor of Massachusetts. He'd been a deputy to the general court and became assistant governor in 1643, and thus was one of the magistrates who condemned Margaret Jones for witchcraft in 1648. William Hibbins held the powerful position of assistant until his death in 1654. All this to say that Anne Hibbins came from a family network that had resources and influence, yet she still succumbed to the accusations of witchcraft. Hibbins' case demonstrates how dangerous it was for women to be assertive, disagreeable, or outspoken, and how long such a reputation confessed her. In 1640, Hibbins sued a group of carpenters whom she'd hired to work on her house, accusing them of overcharging her. She won the lawsuit, but her actions were viewed as abrasive, and so she was subjected to an ecclesiastical inquest. Refusing to apologize to the carpenters for her actions, Hibbins was admonished and excommunicated the church cited her for usurping her husband's authority. Within months of her husband's death, 15 years later, the proceeding against her for witchcraft began. Hibbins was tried and convicted in 1655, but her conviction was set aside by the magistrates. The case was heard again by the general court. The court's record from May 14, 1656 said, Mrs. Anne Hibbins was called forth, appeared at the bar, the indictment against her was read, which she answered, not guilty, and was willing to be tried by God in this court. The evidences against her were read, the parties witnessing being present, her answers considered on, and the whole court being met together, by their vote determined that Mrs. Ann Hibbins is guilty of witchcraft according to the bill of indictment found against her by the jury of life and death. The governor, in open court, pronounced sentence accordingly, declaring she was to go from the bar to the place whence she came and from thence to the place of execution, and there to hang till she was dead. Unfortunately, no evidence contemporary to her and used to convict her has survived. However, piecing together commentary and later documented lore, it seems that one piece of evidence was taken from a chance encounter, by which Hibbins saw two of her detractors walking down the street whispering to each other, perhaps glancing in her direction. It seems that Hibbins confronted them for gossiping about her being that there was no way she could have heard their words from that distance, but yet she was correct in her accusation, she must have been a witch.
1: Governor Hutchinson recorded the following. Mr. Beach, a minister in Jamaica, in a letter to Dr. Increase Mather in the year 1684, says, You may remember what I have sometimes told you your famous Mr. John Norton once said at his own table before Mr. John Wilson, Elder James Penn, and myself and wife, etc., who had the honor to be his guests, that the wife of one of your magistrates, as I remember, was hanged for a witch only for having more wit than her neighbors. It was his very expression, she having, as he explained it, unhappily guessed that two of her persecutors, whom she saw talking in the street, were talking of her, which cost her her life, notwithstanding all he could do to the contrary, as he himself told us. In addition to John Norton, she had some other supporters initially, among them Selectman Joshua Scottow, who later apologized to the general court for his support of Hibbins. Nine months after her execution, Scottow stated that he did not intend to oppose the proceedings of the general court in the case of Mrs. Ann Hibbins. I am cordially sorry that anything from me, either in word or writing, should give offense to the honored court my dear brethren in the church, or any others.
0: The fourth and final witchcraft execution in Boston was that of Anne Glover, whom we remember as Goody Glover, in 1688. Cotton Mather detailed the case in a writing that we'll refer to as Memorable Providences, though its full title is Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcrafts and Possessions, A Faithful Account of Many Wonderful and Surprising Things That Have Befallen Several Bewitched and Possessed Persons in New England. Particularly, a narrative of the marvelous trouble and relief experienced by a pious family in Boston very lately and sadly molested with evil spirits. Whereunto is added, a discourse delivered under the congregation in Boston on the occasion of that illustrious providence. As also a discourse delivered under the same congregation on the occasion of a horrible self-murder committed in the town. With an appendix and vindication of a chapter in a late book of remarkable providences from the calumnies of a Quaker at Pennsylvania so you can see why we abbreviate it. Mather writes, There dwelt at this time in the south part of Boston a sober and pious man, whose name is John Goodwin, whose trade is that of a mason, and whose wife, to which the good report gives a share with him in all the characters of virtue, has made him the father of six now-living children. Of these children, all but the eldest, who works with his father at his calling, and the youngest, who lives yet upon the breast of the mother, have labored under the direful effects of a no less palpable than stupendous witchcraft. Indeed, that exempted son had also, as was thought, some lighter touches of it, in unaccountable stabs and pains now and then upon him, as indeed every person in the family at some time or other had, except the godly father and the sucking infant, who never felt any impressions of it. But these four children mentioned were handled in so sad and strange a manner, as has given matter of discourse and wonder to all the country, and of history not unworthy to be considered by more than all the serious of the curious readers in this New English world. The widow Anne Glover and her daughter Mary worked as housekeepers for John Goodwin. In the summer of 1688, 13-year-old Martha Goodwin accused Mary of stealing laundry. This caused Anne to have an argument with Martha and the Goodwin children. It must have been quite the blow-up, because shortly thereafter the children became ill and started acting strangely. The doctor who was called suggested that their ailment was caused by witchcraft, because he couldn't offer another diagnosis or heal the children.
1: Mather writes, Glover, in her daughter's defense, bestowed very bad language upon the girl that put her to the question, immediately upon which, the poor child became variously indisposed in her health and visited with strange fits, beyond those that attend an epilepsy, or those that they call the diseases of astonishment. It was not long before one of her sisters and two of her brothers were seized, in order one after another, with effects like those that molested her. Within a few weeks, they were all four tortured everywhere in a manner so very grievous that it would have broken a heart of stone to have seen their agonies. Skillful physicians were consulted for their help, and particularly our worthy and prudent friend Dr. Thomas Oakes, who found himself so affronted by the distempers of the children that he concluded nothing but a hellish witchcraft could be the origin of these maladies. And that which yet more confirmed such apprehension was that for one good while the children were tormented just in the same part of their bodies all at the same time together, and that they saw and heard not one another's complaints, though likewise their pains and sprains were swift like lightning. Yet when supposed the neck or the hand or the back of one was racked, so it was at that instance with the other too. They would bark at one another like dogs, and again purr like so many cats. They would sometimes complain that they were in a red-hot oven, sweating and panting at the same time unreasonably. And they would say, cold water was thrown upon them, at which they would shiver very much. They would cry out of dismal blows with great cudgels laid upon them, and though we saw no cudgels nor blows, yet we could see the marks left by them in red streaks upon their bodies afterward and one of them would be roasted on an invisible spit, run into his mouth and out at his foot, he lying and rolling and groaning as if it had been so in the most sensible manner in the world. And then he would shriek that knives were cutting of him. Sometimes also, he would have his head so forcibly, though not visibly, nailed onto the floor that it was as much as a strong man could do to pull it up. One while they would be all so limber that it was judged every bone of them could be bent, another while they would be so stiff that not a joint of them could be stirred. They would sometimes be as though they were mad, and then they would climb over high fences beyond the imagination of them that looked after them. Yea, they would fly like geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground and their arms waved like the wings of a bird.
0: Glover was arrested and tried for witchcraft. There's a lot of lore surrounding the trial, especially with regard to Glover's English language skills. Most tour guides will tell you that Glover was asked to say the Lord's Prayer in English, but she could only recite it in Gaelic and Latin, and that her failure to pray in English marked her as a witch. Mather records the issue of language as follows. It was not long before the witch thus in the trap was brought upon her trial at which, through the efficacy of a charm, I suppose, used upon her by one or some of her crew, the court could receive answers from her in none but the Irish, which was her native language. Although she understood the English very well, and had accustomed her whole family to none but that language in her former conversation, and therefore the communication between the bench and the bar was now chiefly conveyed by two honest and faithful men that were interpreters. It was long before she could, with any direct answers, plead unto her indictment. And when she did plead, it was with confession, rather than denial of her guilt. Cotton Mather wrote that Glover was a scandalous old Irish woman, very poor, a Roman Catholic and obstinate in idolatry. Her house was searched and small images, or doll-like figures, were found. When Mather was interrogating her, she supposedly said that she prayed to a host of spirits, probably referring to Catholic saints, but Mather took this to mean that these spirits were demons. Similarly, the small images or dolls may have been representations of the saints. The dolls, perhaps icons, were brought into the courtroom, and when she touched one of them, a good one child fell to the floor in fits. Mather continues The court appointed five or six physicians one evening to examine her very strictly, whether she were not crazed in her intellectuals and had not procured to herself by folly and madness the reputation of a witch. Diverse hours did they spend with her, and in all that while no discourse came from her but what was pertinent and agreeable. Particularly when they asked her what she thought would become of her soul, she replied, You ask me a very solemn question, and I cannot well tell what to say to it. She owned herself a Roman Catholic and could recite her paternoster in Latin very readily, but there was one clause or two always too hard for her, whereof she said she could not repeat it if she might have all the world. In the upshot, the doctors returned her compost mentis, and sentence of death was passed upon her.
1: On November sixteenth, 1688, Glover was hanged in Boston amid mocking shouts from the crowd. When she was taken out to be hanged, she said that her death would not relieve the children of their malady. There are several testaments as to her final words. According to some... She said that the children would keep suffering because she was not the only witch to have afflicted them. But when asked to name the other witches, she refused. Another account says that Glover said that killing her would be useless because it was someone else who had bewitched the children. Either way, Anne Glover did believe in witches. She simply claimed that she was not one. A Boston merchant who knew her, Robert Califf, said that Goody Glover was a despised, crazy, poor old woman an Irish Catholic who was tried for afflicting the Goodwin children. Her behavior at her trial was like that of one distracted. They did her cruel. The proof against her was wholly deficient. The jury brought her guilty. She was hung. She died a Catholic. Samuel Sewell chronicled the event quite matter-of-factly. November 16th. The upholsterer tells me the ship is loading too much by the head and sails badly. About 11 a.m., the widow Glover is drawn by to be hanged. Mr. Larkin seems to be marshal, the constables attend, and Justice Bullivant there. Went to Captain Davis's to meeting. Mr. Willard preached from Job 30.23. Anne's daughter Mary reportedly suffered a mental break from the strain of her mother's trial. Her mind gave way under the strain, and she ended her days a raving maniac. She was likely the same Mary Glover, the Irish Catholic witch, who was imprisoned in Boston alongside convicted pirates Thomas Hawkins, Thomas Pound, and William Coward, whose trial shared some of the same judges as Anne Glover's, and who were also ministered by Cotton Mather in late 1689.
0: The Witchcraft Act of 1735 made it a crime for a person to claim that any person had magical powers or was guilty of practicing witchcraft. The law abolished the hunting and execution of witches in Great Britain and its colonies. The maximum penalty set out by the act was a year's imprisonment. In 1988, 300 years after her death, the Boston City Council proclaimed November 16th as Goody Glover Day. She's the only victim of the witchcraft hysteria in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to receive such a tribute.
1: To learn more about Boston's history of witchcraft trials, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 152. We'll have links to the primary sources we cited, including Winthrop's journal, Hale's A Modest Inquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft, and Memorable Providences. We'll also include a WBUR interview with Sarah Black regarding her research on Alice Lake, and a recent article that examines the myth of Irish slavery that has crept up in the lore of Anne Glover. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and The Witch Hunt, this week's Boston Book Club pick.
0: If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play it on a future show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's one of the best ways to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about the 1804 Snow Hurricane.